0: Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. As many Canadians are probably aware, in September of 2023, the Canadian Parliament gave a standing ovation to 98 year old Yaroslav Hunka, who at the time was celebrated because of his role in fighting the Soviets during the Second World War. This incident soon became a national and international embarrassment when it was realized that while Hunka did indeed fight the Soviets, he did so as part of an SS regiment. He fought for the Nazis. In the aftermath of this scandal, It came to light that Canada, in fact, welcomed various members of the Ukrainian community into Canada after the war, some of whom had indeed fought with the Nazis, many of whom were SS. How did Hunka end up receiving a standing ovation in Canada's parliament? How did nobody seem to know he had fought for the Nazis? And more importantly, why did Canada open its borders to SS veterans in the post-war period? These questions make up the core of an incredible discussion I had with historian and author Per Anders Rudlin. Per and myself both were doing our graduate studies at the University of Alberta back in 2005-2006 when Per was actively working on the subject of SS veterans in Canada, many of whom had settled in Alberta and even became prominent donors to the University of Alberta. In this part one of a two-episode special, Per takes us through the history of the 1st Ukrainian Division, also known as the 14th Waffen SS Division Galician. And Per talks about how and why SS veterans were allowed into Canada after the war and how they became leading members of the Canadian-Ukrainian community and thus had a direct role in shaping what we remembered and what we swept under the rug when it came to their role in fighting for the Nazis. This is Season 9, Episode 4, The SS in Canada, Part (laughs) 1. Per Anders Rudling is a historian at Lund University in Sweden and he focuses on the subjects of nationalism, historical culture, and historical memory in the regions that today make up parts of Ukraine, Belarus, and Lithuania. His 2015 book, The Rise and Fall of Belarusian Nationalism, won the Kolchiki Book Prize, and he is currently researching Ukrainian nationalism during the Cold War. I began our conversation by asking Per to give us some historical background to the 14th Waffen-SS Division Galician.
1: Well, the units we are talking about uh, is the 14th Waffen-SS Division Galician, or Halychyna in Ukrainian, or the 1st Ukrainian Division. That is a military formation which was set up in the of 1943, um, a Waffen-SS formation consisting of Galician Ukrainian, Ukrainians from Western Ukraine that volunteered for the Waffen-SS and took a personal oath to Adolf Hitler as the Third Reich was crumbling and the Eastern Front was crumbling. The uh, German overlords needed all the manpower they they, could get, so they started expanding the Waffen SS with a number of non-German formations. They got a Latvian one, an Estonian one, a Croat one, Albanian one, and Czech one, and and so on. And one of these many Waffen SS formations was this Galician Ukrainian Waffen SS unit. Uh, It was uh, consisting of volunteers. Uh, About 80,000 Ukrainian, Galician Ukrainians volunteered for the unit, of which about 9,000, 10,000 were actually accepted. The unit was then brutally destroyed in the Battle of Brody in West Ukraine in July of 1944, in which about 80% of the men were killed. Then, as the Red Army moved forward, they reconstituted this this unit um, uh, with police men and from all. There was sort of like a vacuum in the area about any sort of men could get. And then they got some much more unsavory uh, elements from the police and whatnot. They were from Eastern Ukraine, Central Ukraine. There were some Russians in there. And these were people that had served in various police formations. So the later they joined these units, the hired war crimes because they came and they transferred from police units. Then as uh, North Germany collapsed, they retreated through Poland into Slovakia where they partook in the crushing of the so-called Slovak National Uprising. There was a national uprising against the puppet Nazi regime of Father Josef Tiso in, in, Slo- in Slovakia, which was crushed with, crushed with the help of these Ukrainian uh, laborators. Then they were transferred to Slovenia and to Yugoslavia, and there they fought anti-Nazi resistance fighters, many of them communists, then ret- retreated up to Today's Austria uh, in the area around Styria or Steiermark, and they fought in a number of battles and capitulated on the 7th and 8th of May to the British. And then the final day, they changed the name from the 14th Waffen-SS to the 1st Ukrainian Division of the Ukrainian National Army. And under that, they have cultivated a memory culture uh, based upon victimization, uh, heroism, sacrifice, brotherhood, and a total war fight against against communism. Right then, this group sat for four years in a in a camp. They were not formally POWs because if they had been recognized as POWs, they would have been sent back to Stalin. Right because they were formally Soviet citizens, but since Western Ukraine, a part of Ukraine which had been Polish before 1939, since it could claim Polish citizenship. They could be sent back into Poland, stay in the West as so-called surrendered military personnel. And Mm -hmm. then they came to Canada in 1950 uh, after a very sketchy, uh, incomplete vetting. Nobody asked questions in 1950. This was the Red Scare, of course, what they cared about was not Hitler. The Nazis were gone, or Mussolini, right? They cared about communists, but they could show that they were reliable anti-communists and Canada needed manpower. Uh, These are farm laborers and very able men, I should say, you know, this was a flower of of the Ukrainian intelligentsia. were people, an elite in a way, 80,000 volunteered, 8,000 got in. These were university students and and, and nationally conscious elements in academia, in in, in law, in in this and that, right? So this became in a way an elite in Canada including vice chancellors of the university you and I uh, attended. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, It's interesting when you're talking about this sort of, you said 80,000 and and Galician Ukrainians. So there's a two-parter to that. I think the first part that I'm interested in is why did they sign up to fight? Is this an anti-communist? Is this anti-Soviet, anti-Stalin?
1: I think it's all of that. It's all of that. I mean, you have to keep in mind they had been Polish citizens until Stalin and Hitler jointly carved up Poland and Stalin shot the Polish elite. So Stalin carried out an utterly brutal occupation. So their experience from a Galician perspective, for them, the Soviets were occupants. They came keep in mind that or Galician had never been part of the Russian empire, right? It had been Polish from the 1300s up until the partitions of Poland in the 1770s. Then it was Austrian for 125 years. Then it became Polish again in 1918. So these were people to which Russian, very much unlike Kiev or central Ukraine, they were bilingual. They had never been under Moscow's rule. For them, Polish was the first world language or German. Right? because they were socialized in that tradition. So they were part of Central Europe. 20 years earlier, they'd been Habsburg uh, residents and, and, and subjects. Then came Stalin, carried out his utterly brutal occupation. Uh, so when the Nazis arrived in Barbarossa, of course, they were greeted in 1941 as, as liberators, as heroes. And you should keep in mind also that uh, Ukraine did not exist as a polity, as, as, as one unit, even during occupation. So during World War II, Galicia became district Galician, the district of Galicia, which was adjoined to the general government that is Hans Frank's occupied Poland, which in turn was part of greater Germany. So Lviv or Lemberg as it was called at the time uh, in German was part of greater Germany. Hmm. The rest of Ukraine constituted the so-called Reichskommissariat, the Commissariat of Ukraine. That included most of Soviet Ukraine. There, the rule was very, very different. So, for for example, uh, if you were had your head screwed on right and you were talented as a young Ukrainian in, in the revival, there were fellowships and scholarships for you to go as Ukrainian to Prague, to Vienna, to 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 Berlin and to study. They had general fellowships for Ukrainians. If you cross over into the Reichskommissariat Ukraine, there the brutal Gauleiter and ruler, Reichskommissar. Uh, Erich Koch and yeah. he said that these are dimension they are earmarked for destruction and they should not get more than three years in school learn the multiplication table up until five they should not to read road signs so they won't be playing around on their autobahns but essentially this is treat them like the natives in the American or Canadian West as a dying breed 200 mm. years from now, nobody will remember anymore that there were people like Belarusians, Ukrainians or Lithuanians that anyone remembers the Sue and Korean and not in North America, Hitler said in his table talks, right? So there was one set of, of one rule in Halicina. They formed a Waffeness in Halicina, in Galicia, right? Not in, in the Reichskommission. Even during the war, they're remembered very, very differently. And there, of course, when the Red Army started pushing back, returning, to Central Ukrainians and East Ukrainians lived in the commissariat. To them, this the, the, the of course, the Soviet rule was horrific. They suffered the famine and all that sort of stuff. Then it came the German rule, which was believed even harsher, even more brutal than that of Stalinist violence. So many Central Eastern Ukrainians perceived the return of the Red Army as a genuine liberation. Not so in Western Ukraine, to which this was a return of a brutal overlord, right? So even how this is remembered is different because the alien Ukrainians in Halichina, to them, Stalin was the bad guy. Under the Red Army, under the Soviets, however, there was terror fear. So the memories also divided. If you, of course, were a Jew, which 35% of the population of Lviv or Lemberg was, they exterminated over 95% of them. So the memories, of course, no Jews were left. The Poles constituted the majority in Lviv. Uh, they were deported. So, the Polish memories, you have the Ukrainian memories, and you have the Jewish memories. And for mm. the Jewish memories, of course, the Nazis, nothing was worse. The one or two percent of the Galician Jews that survived, the return of the Red Army was regarded as a genuine liberation. So, the Jewish and Ukrainian memories are very, very different. So, to answer your question, they, they fought against the Red Army, they fought against what the source a Muscovite uh, Russian occupation, they fought against Karsch, they fought against Stalinist terror, which and all of these things are true. This was a Soviet occupation. It was brutal. It was illegal. It was merciless. And in a sense, I have a certain understanding for why people want to fight back. The problem is, of course, they took oaths directly to Hitler and they fought the return of the Red Army, right? Right. And as they did that, as they fought them, fought fought essentially the whatever the the reconquista liberation, depending on where you come from, as they're fighting in the battle abroad, they're fighting the return of the Red Army. They were exterminating the remnants of the Jews of Europe, so they 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 took it out directly, not to Germany because these were not German soldiers, so they were not Nazis because it couldn't be Nazis because they were Ukrainians. The Nazi part was a German party, only open for Germans, so they were Nazi collaborators, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. If they ask Ukrainian patriots in diaspora, they would say they cannot be collaborators because collaborators is something that the French could be, they betray the motherland. Well, you know, if you join the Waffen SS, I think I think is a that is a reasonable definition.
0: And clearly then they are complicit in the Holocaust, are they not?
1: Well, indirectly, I would say. Indirectly. Okay. I mean, um, okay. at best, in indir- the indirectly at best. I mean, like the, the Jews of Halitchinow, Galicia. Um, unlike the Jews of, Ukra- uh, of the Reichskommissariat, right, Jews in the bulk of Ukraine, they were killed not by gas but by bullets. They were shot by the Einsatzgruppen in 41, 42. Whereas mm-hmm. the Jews in Lviv, some of them were killed in pogrom, they were shootings, but many of them were were, were deported to Berdichev, they the camped there and gassed. So the Jews uh, in Galicia were deported and gassed, whereas in central Ukraine they were shot. Right. Mm. So at the time the Waffen Galicia was established in May. In April of 1943, the Jews of Lviv were essentially already gone, but they recruited many of the men from units that had been complicit in the Holocaust. The officers in the units, and many of them had served in Einsatzgruppen and in, in various exterminatory uh, uh, action. The officers and the non-commissioned officers were trained in the vicinity of the Dachau concentration camp. When you join and volunteer to take a personal oath, not to Germany, but to Adolf Hitler, personally and serving under Heinrich Himmler, doing that, making a choice, you are, of course, signing up for a regime. Suddenly, the Jews are gone.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: They were deported. People knew what happened to them, right? So even after that, they volunteered, took an oath to, to this regime. They were not directly Im- implicit in that regard, but the Waffenesses Halicina consisted of three police regiments. This, this this was the elite. Then they had another th- three police regiments, four, five, and six. And the fourth police regiment was drafted and fought and pacified a Polish village, not far away from Lviv, known as Huta Peniatska. They encircled the village, burnt this one down, up to 1,200 men, women, and children killed, imposed and, and whatnot. That was carried out by the 4th Police Regiment. If you fight for Hitler and take up arms to do this, right, you can yeah. hold them back as, as the murder continues. If you fight for that this genocidal regime, you are co-complicit. You cannot regard as a hero.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's really well said, because it, like you've said, it is complicated. It's it's not as simple as just good guys and bad guys. It's sort of there's these levels of complicity. I think one of the really complicated stories, which I hope you can illuminate for us, though, is how they end up in Canada.
1: Well, they ended up in a number of countries. Many of them came to Canada. Uh, okay. Some ended up in the United States, but relatively few. Uh, again, here, uh, there is a story that... Uh, needs to be written, needs to be studied. This list of 7,100 uh, inmates of the Rimini uh, camp, not available. So it's very hard to work on this. I mean, so does, you know, we, we can reconstruct parts of documents. The Americans, uh, the CIA kicking and screaming, were forced to release a treasure trove of documents uh, uh, to the 1998 Nazi and Imperial Japanese War Crimes Act, forced them to release enormous amounts of, of documentation uh, regarding criminals. Uh, in 2005 and 2007, uh, Jewish uh, l- interest groups and lobby groups uh, lobbied for this because there were suspicions of, that uh, German war criminals came to the United States after after the war. And there were some, you know, well, not necessarily war criminals to many of them, but various Nazi uh, uh, functionaries, Vennius von Brown, and not. So when they released these treasure trove documents, it turned out to have relatively few Germans there because the Germans they didn't really trust, but so many Croatians, Balts, and West Ukrainians. And with those that documentation, you can reconstruct some of this past. Canada and United Kingdom, and I've said also my country, uh, Sweden, has not been as forthcoming. The United States has been very transparent and very open in this regard. So, But we can reconstruct part of this, right? So what happened was in 1949, they were allowed... Uh, they were re-emigrating. The Italians could not hold them in his camp. Uh, Italy was becoming, of course, sovereign again. Germany was slowly being reconstituted. What to do with his men? They did not want to go back to the, to the Soviet Union, obviously. Uh, the British first took them, but shortage of housing, poor living conditions and whatnot. I mean, like they still had like coupons, I believe, to buy uh, pantyhoses and coffee in Britain well up until 1958 to 57, right? So Britain mm-hmm. had a tough, tough post for years. And a shortage of housing and whatnot. The British encouraged them to re emigrate. And the British didn't really screen them. I mean, they they estimated it needed up to six months or nine months to screen them. They were given a few weeks. So they screened 250, roughly, mostly officers and uh, non commissioned officers. But the bulk of these roughly 2,000 that came to Canada were not screened. And then they were doled out as, uh, as farm laborers. These were very skilled labor in a way, hardworking, very, very able people. And they came to Canada. And of course, nobody asked those questions. I mean, the Holocaust was not an issue uh, at this time. This was, as I said, you know, Korean War, Stalin got the, the bomb and whatnot, right? That's what he cared about. And they were reliable anti-communist and Ukrainian Canadian community were very welcoming. Because to them, this was, a, for the nationalist part of the Ukrainian community, this was a very welcome boost of a nationally conscious, national uh, diehard uh, rejuvenation of, of, of the community, right? Uh, whereas the communist Ukrainians, which also existed, objected to this. So this also polarized the Ukrainian community, uh, and they did well in Canada. They prospered. Uh, right. This was in many ways a elite. Uh, these were people with higher education, uh, and of the eighty thousand that volunteered, only ten percent got into the unit. The Holocaust was not part of memory culture, right? It Was only right. really with the the Eichmann kidnapping, the Eichmann trial, the Auschwitz processes in sixty three. The the six days war in Israel 67, but in particular the TV miniseries The Holocaust that ran on CBC, it ran on MBC, it ran on Deutsche Fans in, in Germany and whatnot in 1978. With that TV series The Holocaust, it became a household name. It came into the Canadian living rooms and huh. the Spanish living Rooms. And there the the Ukrainians and Balts did not really figure much, other in that that in, in by roles as as will collaborators and, and as Holocaust perpetrators, something which stung the Ukrainian diaspora. And at the same time, roughly, the Office of Special Investigation was investigating alleged war criminals. There were a number of high profile suspects that were denaturalized and deported. Mm-hmm. And when this happened, the Ukrainian diaspora was stung and they started pushing. They renamed the famine of 1932 33 for Stalin's greatest crime claimed the lives so of many millions they started referring that one as to the hollow demor. it starts with hollow but and and often unfortunately competitively as a rule with this number 7 million to trump the hollow with 6 million or 10 million uh, as the Ukrainian congress repeatedly has has made his case saying that more ukrainians were killed in the famine than you canadians were alive so this became political battleground uh and uh and then of course uh to prevent Denaturalization and deportation, they uh, mobilized and then of course came this Dechen Commission uh, in the 1980s. And the paradox is that that the more central the Holocaust became to the memory culture of the Western world, right, which is list whatnot, right, in, in the 1990s right. in particular. My predecessor here, uh, as a professor of history uh, in our department here, in Lund, he, he he likes to joke that the Holocaust became very important in, in Sweden in 1995. In other words, Sweden joined World War II in 1995. It was very much easier then to decide which good guys, right? Sweden, right. of course, has not a very very heroic history of 1940, 1941, yes. but, you know, as we forget. So the Holocaust became very important to Swedes, you know, we must... Carry on this message, right? Why did it become important in 1995? Well, it did because a political reason. Sweden would join the European Union, realigning, you know, doing away with neutrality. and Cold War is gone and whatnot. So this is a political issue. So in Canada, uh, the more the Holocaust became central, the more difficult it became to promote this this legacy. So you got here in a microclimate. You got here an internal community which glorified. The Waffen SS Galitsin, of course, under the euphemism of the First Ukrainian Division of the Ukrainian right. National Army. So, so you needed to have this knowledge. You know what is the First Ukrainian Division of the Ukrainian National Army? You don't need to you know Ukrainian uh, read Cyrillic letters to to decodify the the memorials that were built in the seventies and eighties in Canada to the Waffen yeah. SS yeah. various groups. So, of course, within the community, they were very proud of his Waffen SS veterans. So it was a badge of honor to have volunteered for the SS not so much in mainstream Canadian society. It was very awkward. And of course, this idea also with the Holocaust, you know, raises questions that, that the Ukrainian community in Canada were not interested in. They want right. to talk Hello, the more. And the more Holocaust, there was narration of that, the more hallo demor, the, uh, the, the higher the numbers went, often in the in the rhetoric, competitively.
0: So in the news right now is Hunka. That's the name that everybody seems to be talking about. But what your research has shown is actually, especially the university... The University of Alberta has been actually associated with quite a few of these veterans. Um, and there's a couple of figures that I'm rather interested in. One of them is Volodymyr Kubiovich Do you think you could explain who Kubiovich is to the listeners?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, yes, Honka, uh, of course, was born in 1925, and he was uh, 18, 19, fresh out of you know, the equivalent of, of high school when he, he joined. He was small fry in that regard. And he donated also money to the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta, our joint alma mater. Uh, and that one, the university determined was, you know, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, uh, it was causing harm, uh, it's regretful, and they retracted it. I just went through this, there might be more another six Waffen-SS fellowships and, and and I found another seven today. So at least 12 Waffen-SS fellowships. The perhaps most problematic of them all, in my opinion, is also the largest one. That is in the name of Volodymyr Kobyevich, who was the most senior and most prominent uh, Ukrainian uh, collaborator during World War II. He was loosely affiliated with a more moderate, well, sorry, I shouldn't use that term because there's nothing moderate about it. the more conservative wing, of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. They pursued a line of cooperation with the German authorities, and he was in charge of what was called the Ukrainian Central Committee in Krakow in Hans Frank's general government already before 1941. So in 4041, before Barbarossa. And as such, he, he essentially served the, the occupants, but he had some 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 minor uh, influence on policy, right? They, how, how how the dairy business was being carried out, and so on. And he was corresponding with German functionaries, including Adolf Eichmann, uh, and and with Hans Frank, uh, in particular, 1940-1941. Very very aggressively anti-Semitic uh, uh, rhetoric, um, committed racist ethnic cleanser. He, he uh, tried to lobby Hans Frank to say that you know since Ukrainians. Have, have much more experience of, of suffering under Jewish exploitation. Now, when the land is being liberated or the Jews being removed, now we have a stronger claim to this Jewish property, this ironizing money, right? And he worked with the German authorities. And he was also the one who in 1943 took the initiative to set up a, a, a Ukrainian Galician division in, 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 in Alicina. After the war, he he, he then uh, retreated with the Germans. Uh, I believe via Vienna first, and then he ended up in the outside of Paris in Sarcelles, outside of Paris, and there he continued the, this uh, this academic society known as the Shevchenko Academic Society, which was sort of like an uh, an emigre uh, academy of sciences for Ukrainians in, in exile. And uh, then he edited this encyclopedia of, of of Ukraine first in Ukrainian, and then with Canadian multicultural funding, he did a, an English translation of this in nineteen from nineteen seventy six to Atlee's death in nineteen eighty five. So he was a top Ukrainian collaborator. He left behind an endowment of 430,000 Canadian dollars. That is what, 15 times that of Hunka. Hunka was a 19 year old at the time. He was the most senior Ukrainian collaborator there was, who was actively lobbying for ethnic cleansing and whatnot. Fully committed to this sort of folkish racial uh, uh, nationalism.
0: Who is Peter Severin and what is his relationship to all of this going on?
1: Peter Severin was a lawyer. He was a politician. He was an organizer. He was a university chancellor at the University of Alberta, in 1982, 1986. He was the, 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 the president, I think they call it, of the World Congress of Free Ukrainians. He was heading I said, I think I said, the Provincial uh, Progressive Conservative Party in Alberta, a very able organizer, and he was a Waffen-SS volunteer. He volunteered for in the Waffen-SS when he was, he was born in 1927. So he was then, I think he joined in 1944. Uh, So he joined late. He was a member of that unit for about a year. We don't know so much about the exact details. Most of the soldiers volunteered. I think uh, my reading of his sort like between the lines of what he wrote was that that he volunteered. His father encouraged him to join. So I don't think he was drafted. The bulk of them were not drafted. Uh, Then he fought not in Brody, but he was part of this draft this enlargement of, of of the of the unit after Brody, and he appeared to have volunteered. He he made it through Slovakia to to uh to part of the battle of Gleischenberg at, at, at the border between Austria and 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 uh, and uh, Yugoslavia or what today is Yugoslavia and Austria. Uh, back then, of course, didn't exist during World War Two. Stones conservative, uh, father of Canadian multiculturalism, very active and very successful in bringing money into Ukrainian uh, causes. As historian Aya Fujivara at University of Alberta argued that, you know, Canadian multiculturalism was to a very high degree the result of Ukrainian nationalist lobbying. Uh, they were very, very active in this when this by and by commission appeared, bilingualism, but bi- biculturalism. The Ukrainians were the third voice here. And Saverin together with Manoli Lupol who was the first director of the CIUS, were very, very su- successful in getting uh, money into their nationalist projects. So he was active in the Plast Association, the Ukrainian Scouting Association. He was not a scholar. He was. He was. He was. He was an administrator. And, I, and I was, by all accounts, I've gone through his memoir here in Ukrainian. I've gone through all, everything I could find about him. He, he was uh, an able organizer and I met him a number of times and he, he and his wife made, made delightful impressions on me, you know, a yeah. uh, very sweet uh, uh, couple and they organized these sort of uh, open lectures at the Plast house in Plast Domivka in Edmonton. Uh, I think maybe one should not sentence or, or, or just judge a man by by that. But he was somebody who volunteered for the Waffen-SS. He, he was proud of his Waffen past. He inaugurated and built and, and got the fundraising for the Waffen SS memorials in Edmonton. He was the the the, 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 the keynote speaker in Saint Catherine's for the 40th anniversary of the Battle of Brody in 1984. He was a proud Waffen SS veteran and leading the veterans' association, um, and he was very much engaged in, uh, in in as a genocide awareness educator, promoting a view of Ukrainians as genocide victims. Not so interested in talking about the Holocaust, I would say right. not so interested in discussing his the tattoo under his left uh, arm. but I mean like like every the rest of us very complex and uh, a yeah. man who per, performed very well I mean I, I in a way I, I I find in a way in many ways, I find him a much more you know much less problematic figure than somebody like Kubiovich, who was one of the organizers of this unit. Right. There was this other guy, Lev Kobabich who was a member of, he was a, the, the Canadian leader of the Waffen-SS veterans. He was not only a member of the Waffen-SS he was also a member of the, the 5th Waffen-SS division, uh, Viking, uh, fought by Warsaw. I mean, there are some people that are much more problematic. Uh, yeah. Personally, I, I like Severin very much. And I think one should account for the complexity. He grew up in a very, very difficult times. But he also did volunteer for the Nazis. Yeah. And the question is, if Humka cannot be saluted and if he's problematic, if his endowments cannot stand, why should sever it? And between them, these two extremes, you have another uh, 10 fellowships at the University of Alberta. Uh, of course, the situation is that, uh, you know, uh, the humanities are underfunded. Uh, who's going to fund Ukrainian studies? Well, not, not just the average Joe on the street, you know, but this was a community affair and... Uh, in a community where uh, volunteering for the Waffen SS uh, was not only mainstream, it was it was a badge of honor. The Ukrainian Canadian Congress regularly saluted them on on Remembrance Day. You know, these these were heroes to them. So, um, uh, some of this money went into a yeah, number of number of uh, uh, endowments. Some supported Ukrainian scholars that came from Ukraine to study in Canada, which is fine and, and hunky dory, very good. Uh, the money that went into uh, Kubiovich's Encyclopedia of Ukraine, which well, you don't have a camera here, I have it right behind me here. It it appeared, you know, the first volume was sponsored, I believe, by the province of Saskatchewan, the other one by Alberta, you know, by multicultural money. Well, right. so. Kubilios not only volunteered and founded the Waffen SS, then he also edited the Encyclopaedia. So of course, he opened that one. There is no entry on the Holocaust, of course. So not only did he, during his very long life, he died in 1985, also uh, whitewash or or or, or airbrush the narration of these episodes, and he's he is 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 honored as, as a big hero uh, uh, at the University of Alberta, particularly at the, you know at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, when they published their the, this brochure. This, 40 years or 30 years of excellence in 2006 and 2016, of course, if a picture of Sabarin and Kubiowicz on the front, this is the epitome of, of success uh, and glory. So there is this, there is this history that needs to be addressed and should have been right. addressed a long time ago, what the Germans call Aufarbeitung, right? Addressing, go, working through this difficult, difficult history, right? Yeah, It took the Germans up until the 1960s before they started doing this. The French, I think, uh, did not start addressing the Vichy syndrome up until the death after Mitterrand's death in the 1990s. Right. Right. Germany dealing with the colonial past with the Hereros and Namibia and whatnot. It was only like, you know, five or 10 years ago. And of course, my own Sweden, you know, they, as my predecessor here, Klaus-Hurank also said, they joined World War II in 1995 and it was easy to join you know, with who the good guys work. So, you know, maybe we should not point fingers here, but as historians, I think it's important to address this issue of aufarbeitung or, 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 or processing this history and in right. the absence of this. And this is what I was, you know, already when, when you and I were grad students, when well, in 2005, I, I, I tried to raise this issue with the Canadian Institute of, of Ukrainian Studies, no interest whatsoever. Um, and, and of course, the fear was here when the university glorifies people that were complicit or active in the in the Holocaust or, or pledged their allegiance to Adolf Hitler or organized Waffen SS divisions. Uh, of course, they're opening up to all sorts of accusations, and and the unwillingness to deal with this uh, makes things worse. And of course, now. We, I didn't anticipate there would be great war in Europe and I didn't a- anticipate yeah, that the Canadian Parliament would give a standing roaring ovation to a waffen veteran. Yeah. Uh, but of course, this, the, the optics of this is, is so disastrous and it, it's it's so, and it's just, you know, to use a normative statement, stupid, so darn unnecessary. This could have been addressed a long time ago. Had he listened to, you know, I was then a, a young grad student in my late 20s, right? Now I have tenure and I can do what I, what I want more or less. But then, you know, it, for me, it was... I was no hero of course but you know it, it was not without risk to go and tell that Institute you know that 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 sit on the on, on the money to 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 for grad students to say this is not a good idea and I was Stonewalled uh, and now they have it what they have what what, they, what what they have and I could care less about 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 the management or the poor management of that Institute but I do care a lot for Ukraine and Ukraine is fighting it's a, European democracy fighting for its survival. They've had six democratic changes of government. They have a holo- descent of Holocaust survivor as president, fighting heroically against the neo-imperialist, neo-totalitarian state. And they deserve all the support you can get. And I support Ukraine to 100%. What I'm doing here is like, I'm, I'm I'm taking Ukrainian scholars here and looking for funding and, and, and running this research group here. And my commitment is 100% to Ukraine.
0: want to thank you all for listening today don't forget you can find me on twitter at doc boris that's at d-o-c-b-o-r-y-s you can find us on facebook you can find us on instagram you can find us on patreon and you can find us on all podcast listening devices and please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment we love to hear from you i'm david boris Stay curious, friends.